we've been in a series called Changed. And just to kind of sum it up, over several weeks we've been asking this question. Yeah, I go to church, I do the God thing, I sit in here and listen, and I read my Bible occasionally, I go to life group, but can I really change? Like, is all of this making a real difference in my life? And that's a fair question because theoretically, I would say if following Jesus is not changing your life in some way, if it's not making you different, then you probably should question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to do all this if I'm not changing? And everyone, including me, from time to time, we get trapped in these areas where we go, I feel like I'm doing all the right things. Or we get trapped in an area where we go, I know I'm not doing all the right things. Whatever the case is, we feel trapped and we go, I can't seem to get past this. I can't break through. Am I just stuck in this area of my life forever? And we've talked about relationships. We've talked about our physical body. We've talked about our, our, you know, our life direction and the influence that we have on other people. Can that stuff really change? Or am I resigned to just exist and make it until heaven? And of course, the, the good news we've been sharing is you don't have to wait till heaven. You can change. Radical, lifelong change can happen only through your relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going we're gonna, to uh, talk about another area, our finances today, but it's not going to be what you think, so relax. And then next week we'll wrap this up talking about can I change spiritually? And then on March the 4th, we're gonna, which, which is a great segue, we're going to start a new series called The Waiting Room. Because for a lot of us, we, we look at these changes and we look at the progress I'm making in my life and we kind of tap our watch to make sure it's still working and we're like, okay, God, anytime, anytime you want to show up and make all this stuff happen like it's supposed to, I'm ready. And the Bible is full of people who we can look at their life story and they spent a great deal of their lives in the waiting room waiting on God. And I think it'll be a great encouragement to you. So, so don't miss those weeks. Bring somebody with you. I say this all the time. If the Bridge Fellowship and what God is doing here, if that's making a difference in your life, share it with somebody. Tell them to come with you. I know a lot of you already do because I see new faces every week. But this, this series on the waiting room is a, an opportunity to, to build a bridge with someone who may be skeptical about God. And they may be looking at the, the condition of their life going, I, I don't have time for that, man. I, God, God, God has ruined my whole life or God's not doing his job like I want him to or whatever. This, I think this series will encourage them. So invite someone two weeks from today, uh, that series kicks off. So I want to review what we've been talking about the past few weeks in a little bit different way this morning. And I want to start by this, by saying this. Um, y- y'all been watching the Olympics? Any, any Olympic freaks? Like, I don't know if everybody gets into it like we do. Um, Michelle and I cannot wait to hit the couch in the evenings. We love it. I, th- I think I, and I, I'm, I'm on meds this morning because I had dental surgery this week, so I'm not sure what I've told you, okay? Um, however, I think I've told you before that um, uh, when we were little, we used to watch, and, and uh, when Allison w- was young, she 
at the end of the Olympics, she started weeping and crying because she thought they were over forever. Like she thought they were never coming back. And, uh, and so our family, we love the Olympics. And, and I, I had this thought this morning as I was getting ready to come over here. I had the, the TV on and it was cross-country skiing. Now, first of all, if I'm going to pick a sport to devote my whole life to, I'm going to do like the ski jumping where I get to go off of a ramp or do flips in the air. These guys are just glutton for punishment, right? These guys are like, I'm going to ski with my arms and my legs for miles and miles. And there's nothing exciting. I'm just going to keep doing this for miles and miles and miles. And the the particular event that I was watching this morning was the four by 10,000 kilometer relay. So it's a 10K four times and you tag your guy and go, okay, you ski for six miles, half of it uphill. That's the part that really got me. I'm like, uphill skiing? I'm good. Like, I know what downhill skiing is, but who signs up for uphill skiing, right? So these guys are, uh, are, are, you know, it's brutal. I mean, they are, they are putting their body through it. And here's what I noticed this morning. Uh, along the course, they have coaches. I'm assuming they're coaches that are in their country gear. And they're also on skis stationed throughout the course as these guys are skiing along. And as they come up over a ridge to that coach's area... He will jump out almost all the way out on the course with this guy and ski along beside him for a minute. And he's screaming at him as as he skis. Now, the first thought I have is I'm skiing uphill. Don't scream at me. (laughs) But then but then I realize, you know what he's doing? He's encouraging him. Like they they have strategically placed people along that route. So that when these guys are tired and they're ready to give up, there's somebody that jumps out there and runs along beside them for a minute to go, you got this. You can do this. Don't give up. And then I noticed something really interesting at the end of the race, because it ended literally right before I came here this morning. Um, A lot of races, you'll see uh, guys kind of scatter and they go gather with their teammates and celebrate or whatever. Not these cross-country skiing guys. Every one of them, to the man for every single country, they waited at the finish line for the other competitors to finish. And as as the guys, even even some guys that were like 12 minutes behind them, as as they crossed the finish line, they would embrace their competitor, I think because they know that race. And they know how hard it is. They know what that guy just did. And it's like this celebration of time together where people are like, we, we made it. We did it. We all did it. We know how hard it is because we're all running the same race. And at, at the end, one of the very last competitors across the finish line was the, the United States uh, team and, and the cross-country skier for the USA. And it's not our cup of tea. We like doing flips in the air on a snowboard. But, but he literally crosses the finish line and collapsed. And without thinking, like his coaches made their way over there too, but Sweden... And Russia rushed to this guy's side to pick him up after he collapsed. And here's the thoughts I had. First of all, the the coaches that come out on the course and and they ski alongside them for a minute, screaming encouragement at them, I kind of see that as part of my job as your pastor. And I take it that seriously. Sometimes you walk in here on a Sunday 
And the race is hard, man. And you're struggling. And if there's any little thing that I can do by getting up here and just skiing along beside you for a minute and going, you got this. You can do this. Then I feel like I'm doing my job. But it's not just me. As I watch those competitors one by one cross the finish line and their opponents wrap their arms around them and congratulate them. And then when one collapsed, the, the fellow racers ran over to pick them up. Here's the thought I had. That's your job. That's our job with each other. As we run this race, it's hard. I mean, all we got to do is look at the news and think about Florida or think about the things that you're walking through in your own life. And this is hard. And when we start thinking, man, am I making any difference? Am I changing? It's really good sometimes to have somebody just get in your ear for a minute and go, you're doing great. You're doing really good. And you are changing. And, and I see change in you. And so, so what I want to do today is, is read three passages real quick of Scripture that we've been looking at each week and, and, and kind of go down a different path real quick and then we'll jump into today's topic and be done. The gift I give you for all the stuff I had to say up front is a short message. You're welcome. Here we go. <clears throat> John 10.10 10 is a famous verse where Jesus kind of lays out for us why he came. He tells us, hey, this is why I'm here. This is why I came to live a perfect life and die on a cross. This is what he says in his own words. He said, the thief's purpose, and that's the enemy, the devil, his purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them, that's you and me, a rich and satisfying life. The the version of the Bible that most of us probably grew up with says, "I, I I, I came to give them life and give it to them abundantly. More than they could ever imagine. And, and remember, we gotta, we got to stop here and analyze the fact that not one time in any of this statement does Jesus say, I came to give them an easy, smooth life. In fact, in John 16, which we won't put that one up on the screen, but Jesus is gathered with his disciples and he says, hey, I'm, I'm leaving in a while. I'm going to go back to heaven. I'll, I'll be back one day, but I want you to know in this world, it's going to get rough. You're going to have moments in this life that are really hard, but cheer up, because I have overcome the world. It's the whole reason he came, is so that you and I, in the midst of the baggage that we carry in our lives, the struggles that we have to encounter, the really bad news that we have to turn on and hear on our television sets, in the midst of all that, we can experience true hope and joy. And, and walk around with a smile on our face knowing that God is in control and His plan for my life is going to be worked on. Philippians 1.6, you can look it up later. It's one of my favorite life verses. And it's basically the Apostle Paul saying this. I'll put it in Steve's paraphrase. Whatever it is that God began doing in your life, the moment that you handed over the keys of your life to Him, He's not going to quit working on it till the work is done. He's going to work all the way until the day when Jesus reappears and we all go to heaven. But one of the things you need to know, we don't teach here at the Bridge Fellowship and we never will as long as I'm allowed to be the pastor. We don't teach hang on till heaven gospel. Because Jesus didn't die just so that you could go to heaven when you die. Like that, That's a great perk and I'm glad he did that. But he died to give you a rich and satisfying life right now. 
right here in the midst of all the junk. It can be rich and satisfying and abundant, but only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second verse we've been looking at is Galatians chapter 5, and this is the Apostle Paul. Same thing, he's talking about why Jesus came, why he did what he did. He says, so Christ has truly set us free. Remember, we've been using this image of a prison cell, and why would anyone who spent time in prison and then they were set free, why would anyone ever voluntarily go back to the prison cell? It just doesn't make sense, right? He said, Christ has truly set you free. Now make sure you stay free. And, and I'm just shooting straight with you today, okay? This is not even in my notes. I'm just shooting straight. The times when I keep my focus squarely on Jesus Christ as my hope and my purpose and my strength, I don't have a desire to go back to the prison cell. But the moment I start taking my eyes off of him and looking at all the junk in my life and looking at all the the struggles that I have or feeling sorry for myself or just taking my focus off him, period, that's when I start straying back into the line of fire and I find myself back in the same prison cell again. The good news is there's plenty of grace for that. I'll get, I'll get to that in a second. And then the last verse that we looked at last week is Matthew 18, uh, starting in verse 26. It says this, but Jesus looked at him. He's talking to some religious leaders who are basically asking him, you know, this is impossible. Can this really happen? And this is Jesus' response to them. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And when we think about life change, when we think about getting past these rut areas of our lives, areas that maybe for decades you and I have been struggling with, and we go, I'm never going to get past this one. I'm never going to get over bitterness. I'm never going to not be lonely. I'm never going to not be afraid. Jesus says, with man, you're right. But with God, everything is possible. You can over." this. Now, with all of that sitting out on the table, everything we just read, I want us to consider this. All of us have those areas of our lives where no matter what we read, no matter what we do, they still don't line up with what God says is right and best. We all have those areas. And the touchy part is, I have to tell you today, by, by the very definition, those parts of our areas that don't line up with God, by definition, that's sin. And it got even quieter because like, we don't like to say that word anymore. It, that's what it is. It, it's sin. Anything that doesn't measure up with what God says is right and true, that's the definition of sin. But I don't share that with you to beat you up. I share that to say the good news about sin is this thing called grace. And it's what Jesus died on the cross to give us. It's what he brought with him when he came to this earth. And that's why you can never lose hope with whatever it is you're walking through, whether it's sin in your own life or someone else's sin that's fallen on top of you. Whatever it is, you have hope. You're not going to run out of hope because God's not going to run out of grace. You, 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 it doesn't matter how dark sometimes it seems. There's never going to be this moment where, where God goes, oops, Ferris. Doggone it, he's committed that sin. This is number 1,386 time he's done that sin. I'm over it. He's out. I'm, I'm no more grace for him in that area. 
That's not the God we serve. There, there is plenty of grace. But yet the, the cycle that we repeat and, it, and we kind of stay stuck in is we go, well, that's awesome. Like, I believe that. I believe that Jesus came full of grace to forgive me of my sins. But it kind of goes like this. Hey, God, I'm sorry I, I did that again. Please forgive me. And he's like, I already have. My grace is sufficient. You, you, confession for your sin is for you, not for me. I already knew that you sinned. I already knew that you were going to sin. And I got grace for that. And we go, oh, I'm forget. Great, thanks. And we start again. But then we look in the mirror one day and we go, wait a minute. This cycle of, I'm sorry, God. I, I, want, I don't want to do that again. Please forgive. Oh, you do forgive me. Thank you. And I start to, and then I do it again. And rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Sometimes we go, nothing's changing. Like, I, I get it. I'm glad for grace, but I want my life to look different. And that's why we've been taking these different areas of our lives and examining them uh, uh, against, you know, what has to happen for those areas, my relationships, my physical life, my finances, spirits, what has to what is what has to happen for those areas to look different in my life? And that leads us to this point. This one's worth taking a, a picture of, though it's easier to take a picture of it than actually live it out. Look at this. If we want our lives to look more like what God has planned for us, and I would assume that's why you're here this morning. People don't come to church because they don't want God's plan for their lives. If, if we want our lives to look more like what God has planned for us, then it's most likely going to require us to make changes in how we live and how we see the big picture. And so we've, we've taken these areas of our lives and said, well, how do I make these changes? And today's a little different because we're going to talk about money. And the question is, can I change my life financially? And, and before we go any further, you need to know today's message is not how to get rich and don't leave. Like, you, you know, like, man, I, I'll come to that message. Tell me how to do that one. That's not what it's about. But it's also not about if you love God, you better give us more of your money because that's not who we are. I'll get to that in a minute. But I do want you to know this, two things. Number one, I don't think it's my place at all, personally as a man, to tell you how to spend your money. That is none of my business. And that's not the business that I'm in. However, I do take seriously the responsibility that I have to share with you truths from the Bible about what God says I should do with my money. I take, and, and I don't shy away from that. And it's not always fun. Because I wish that you guys could see the view that I see anytime. And we, we don't do it very often here at the bridge, but we are committed to teaching you biblical giving and money management. And every time I say the M word, I wish you could see your body language as a whole group, right? Like everyone stiffens up, people shift in their chair, people fold their arms. You know, it's amazing this, this transformation that takes place. And, and it's not easy, but it is our responsibility to make sure that you are healthy and that you are making changes toward what God wants you to look like in every area of your life. That's why we're not afraid to talk about finances. And so I want you to know about a tool that we believe in here at the bridge. It's called Financial Peace University. Uh, we have a life group that does financial peace. They've launched, and so we'll launch again in the fall. You'll be able to jump in on that. You, if, if your financial situation 
Let me just, this is free this morning. If finances are the greatest stressor in your life, don't wait for the fall. Find one of our, David Dirks is back there, Mike Baker, he's out today, but he teaches our uh, FPU here. Go to them and say, is there a class somewhere that, I, I need it now, I can't wait till the fall. Or would you guys be willing to do another run during the summer or whatever, I need help. And what this is, is it's a program designed to to give you exactly what it says, financial peace. Because a lot of people, this guy included, for most of our lives, we don't have a peaceful relationship with money. The reason mine wasn't peaceful is I just never had any. Like that's why my relationship with money has never been very peaceful because I just wanted more. Can you guys relate to that? Like we... But, but in reality, if we will understand where everything comes from and how God wants our money to work, I, Michelle and I have been through this class and we have met dozens and dozens and dozens of families who said this completely changed our life financially. We, we were talking divorce. And what we r- really realized is just neither one of us knew how to healthily take care of our money. And once we got on the right track there, our marriage got better. And you guys know that money is one of the number one reasons that couples get divorced. So why wouldn't you make that investment in your family? We supplement uh, people's fees. There's a fee to do this, and we supplement that as much as we can. But I'm telling you, if I had $100 to invest somewhere, I would invest it in this program to say, am I as healthy as I need to be? What changes do I need to make so that I don't sit up at night worrying financially. It, it's worth looking at. Anyway, so uh, here, here's, here's what I want to get out of the way before we go any further today, okay? I know that people in general, maybe not you, maybe you, you don't feel this way, but I know a lot of people are very skeptical about the church when it comes to money and other topics, to be honest with you, but especially money. I grew up in a home where people didn't go to church, and the things that I heard all of my life as a young boy was, churches just try to get your money. They're crooked just like anybody else. And we hear that enough times over and over, and we start scratching our head and go, what are they really doing with our money? And so before we go any further, I want you to know, uh, as a baby church, two years in a row, we've existed for two years, and two years in a row, we've finished in the black, which many churches never do. And we've done that both years that we've been in existence. Number two, we are an open book organization. In other words, anytime you want to meet with our CFO, Elizabeth Patton, and you want to sit down and look at our finances and how we spend money and how we budget, we, we, you have at it. We are never going to be a church that goes, well, you don't need to know that. You do need to know that because your financial giving is what keeps these doors open. Your, your generosity with the, the little bit of money that God has given you is what allows us to help people like the Flick family that we took up an offering for. Like that doesn't help. That doesn't happen unless you're giving like you should. And so I want you to know we got nothing to hide. And anytime you want to see our records, you can see those. Because of a few selfish, dishonest TV preachers, most people make the assumption that the church just wants my money. And I don't want you to ever feel that way about the bridge. I want you to feel like, you know what the church is about? They're about my heart getting better. 
They're about helping me through really rough times in my life. That's why we opened the doors of this church. Not so we can get your money. Although people think that. In fact, before we ever opened our doors, uh, just a couple of weeks ago was the two-year anniversary of kind of our preview service. And we took these door hangers. I think we had 200 of them. I don't know. We didn't, we didn't do much, but we went door to door, hanging them on doors saying, Hey, it's a new church. Come check it out if you want, whatever. It was in the neighborhood here. And, uh, and I'm hanging a door hanger on this guy's door. And, uh, I don't know if y'all are like this. Have y'all noticed how people have gotten more and more creative and fancy with their no solicitation signs, right? Like if you don't want me soliciting on your doorstep, put a huge, bright, blinking light, no soliciting. Don't like put it in fancy script or whatever, because I just think it's a door decoration. And that's what I thought for this guy. And I, I, I left the door hanger and I'm walking out, you know, across the cul-de-sac in, uh, from his house and he honks at me. He's pulling up and he honks and literally he doesn't even stop the truck all the way before he's jumping out. He's like, did you just put something on my door? I'm like, Yes. He's like, can you read? Yes. He's like, well, then you read that it says no soliciting. I'm like, you don't have a note. Oh, that pretty thing right there. That's no soliciting. And so I said, sir, no worries. I'm not, I'm not selling anything. I'm, I'm actually a part of a new church. And he said, oh, so you're selling me religion. And I said, no, sir, I'm not, I'm not selling anything. And these were the next words that came out of his mouth. Trust me, you'll get my money one way or the other. And it just broke my heart because it's not why we're here. It's not what this is about. In fact, if what I was about was making a lot of money, I'd do it a a different way because this is hard. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like I'd go start some other business. I wouldn't do church planting to make a lot of money. I'd be like, surely we can figure out an easier way to make money than this. But it it hurts my heart. And, And so... I want you to know that our goal here at the bridge, one of our core values is authentic relationships, and we want to be authentic about everything. And when there's a need, I'll come to you. And at at the very end here, in just a couple of seconds, I'm just going to put the notes away and just talk family here for a minute. But look at this. As we talk about this and and look at this story in in Scripture today, here's what we want to do. We want to examine God's Word and explore ways that we can make long-term life changes that will bring us closer to Jesus and line us up to receive the blessing that He has in store for us. We want to do that even when it's talking about awkward topics like money or sex or relationships or any of that stuff. I wouldn't be responsible as your spiritual leader or your pastor if we didn't tackle issues like that and say, what does God say? Because you hear us say all the time, nobody needs Steve Ferris's opinion on this. We all, me included, we need to hear from God. We need to know what does God say about this. And so I thought it made sense to, to do a little did you know today. Maybe you did know this, but maybe you didn't. Did you know that Jesus addressed the topic of money or possessions in 11 of the 39 parables mentioned in the New Testament? So right just under a third of the time that he told these stories, they were about money or possessions. And by the way, in case you don't know, when you're reading the Bible and Jesus starts telling a story, you're toast. 
Just, just know that. Like if, if, if the answer to your question starts with, there once was a man, you're in trouble. You better just pack it up because he's about to put you in your place. And that's how he taught. He would, taught, he would teach through these stories or parables. And 11 of 39 of them, roughly one out of four, was about money or possessions. Isn't that interesting? Money or possessions is mentioned over 2,000 times in the Bible. To compare that, there are 500 verses that mention prayer and 500 on faith. 2,000 on money and possessions. Why was Jesus hung up on money? Was he just trying to get people's money? Last time I checked, he didn't have a place to live. And I'm guessing he only had one burlap dress. I don't know. Like, I don't know where he shopped for clothes or whatever, but I don't think that was it. Here's what I think. This is what I really believe. I believe the Bible mentions money and possessions hundreds of times because God knows that they are the best indicators of who or what we trust to take care of us. I think he knows that when we get in trouble, our go-to is, everybody get out of the way. I got to control this issue. Like, I got to fix this. And money is one of those indicators, right? Because we constantly, at least I do, I won't speak for you, but I constantly think this. If I just had some more money, if I just had enough money to fill in the blank, and and that's not the answer, but God knows that that's our go-to answer. And that's why several times throughout the Old and New Testament, he addresses it so that, so that he will address the one thing that seems to be our fallback anytime life gets difficult. I wonder how many of you guys do this. I pull into a gas station, come and go is my favorite, whatever. And you look in the window and it says, Mega Millions, $380 million, Powerball, 500 million and and you know you don't normally buy powerball tickets but 500 million and then the conversation starts between you and God where you convince God why it's a good idea that you know it's 500 God I could feed a lot of African children for 500 million dollars right and and we start this process of convincing God that our plan is best. It's kind of like last week, right? The, the, one of the reasons people don't make more progress in their relationship with Jesus Christ is because we're constantly forcing our own plan ahead of his. And his takes a long time. Like my plan is mega millions, 300 million. We'll build a church facility. We're done. We don't have to set up in the mornings. It's going to be awesome. We can feed families and help people and, and it'll be awesome. God says, that would be awesome. It's just not my way this time. That mean I can't pray that that will be his way. <laughs> and I must say what I say every time I mention this, if you hit the Powerball, you should tithe. Because <laughs> that would be about $50 million for the Bridge Fellowship. So anyway, my mouth hurts. I'm sorry. Let me ask all that in a form of a question, then we're going to read a story and be done. Let me just turn it around and I'm just going to ask the question. Which do you trust more to provide a good life for you and your family? God or money? And do your actions 
the way you live out your life, do your actions reflect the answer that you give to that question? Because I think most of us want to believe about ourselves, I trust God. Do your actions match that? When life gets difficult, your response to those difficult questions, do they show that you trust God or something else? And that's what really making changes in our finances is all about is, i got to start changing who or what I trust to really take care of me and my family. Because I believe this. I've lived it in different seasons of my life. It's the seasons when I really believe that God is enough that I don't stress over the little stuff. And, and I, I, I dial in my focus really tight on Him, and the other stuff just doesn't seem to bother me like it normally does. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. It's, it's true. It's just hard to do, isn't it? Like sometimes if you hear that song, if life is bad enough, you just want to punch the MP3 player or whatever. Like, stop telling me that. Life sucks right now. And I don't want to think about looking at Jesus in the face. That's why we do this. That's why we have moments like this on a Sunday morning where we can just take a breath and pause and go, I need to refocus. Picture me on skis running beside you. Just refocus, right? So I want to read this story because I think it's the greatest story in all Scripture to, to show how we can change our lives when it comes to money and how we feel about money. It's in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to read 10 verses real quick and we'll be done. It's a story that Jesus uses, right? He's, he's actually this one. He's a part of the story. The guy asks him a question and he answers it and it's not good. Here's what happens. Verse 16 of, of uh, is that Matthew or Luke 19? Oh, well, it's one of those two. I'm seeing this and the meds, whatever. Pray for me. It says this. I swear the Bible says this. Someone came to Jesus with this question. They said, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Man answers, which ones? Jesus replied, you must not murder, not commit adultery, you must not steal, testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. And this guy, standing in front of Jesus, says, oh, I've done all that. Check. He says, I've obeyed all those commands. Verse 20, what else must I do? Like, if I ever stand face-to-face with Jesus and I'm asking him a question, I don't know that I'm going to go, what else you got? But that's, that else, that's what he's doing here. In verse 21, Jesus says, fine. This is where the tide turns. He says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you can come follow me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. I always thought that image was crazy, but they get it because they were around camels all the time, and they know there's no way a camel can fit into the eye of a needle. 
He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? Like, if this guy's not getting it right, then who, what, what chance do we have? And Jesus looked at them, see if this sounds familiar. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Here's my interpretation of what Jesus just said. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to do this dance with money or possessions or friendships or status or acceptance or any of that. We don't have to keep running back to the prison cell. It is possible, including with your finances, for us to get to a place in our lives where we fully believe and live out God is enough. He's enough. And his plan doesn't always look like what my plan would look like, but I trust him enough to know that his plan is better than mine. So instead of wrestling him and trying to force the issue on my agenda, I want to get to a place, Jesus, where I fully trust you and I don't have to worry about all the other stuff. The band's going to come and I'm going to set this aside. And I'm going to kind of sit down here on the on the stool for a minute, and I just want to talk to you as we close today. Because anytime we talk about finances, it's more than about finances. It's about your heart. And it really is about what do I trust to take care of me? Because all of us have limited amounts, at least everybody in here that I know has limited amounts of of money. And so we fight this deal of if, if I give more of my money to God, then I'm not going to have enough for. And, and when we do that, what's happening is this battle, once again, it's, it's not a money battle. It's a trust battle. And once again, we're going, who do I really trust to take care of me? Now, with no notes or anything, this is just from my heart I haven't even prepared this two years ago we really officially two years this coming April we opened the doors of the Bridge Fellowship with a dream in our heart that this could be a place where people could genuinely feel safe to connect back to Jesus whether you know it or not every person that you work with Every person that you live by, all of your family members that make fun of the fact that you come to church, they're looking for the same thing. They're looking for Jesus. They just don't know it yet. And and the reason we opened this place is in hopes that this could be a family, a community of believers that could help people find their way back home to Jesus, where we all need to be in the first place. In every area of our lives, we wanted this to be a place where people could work out and change. And sometimes in this area, it doesn't take very long. I come and I I go to a life group and I, I get around godly people who encourage me and I hear a message and something clicks and I change. But then for some areas of my life, it seems like it takes forever. And other churches that I've gone to, I feel sometimes like I'm being judged. 
because it's taken a long time for me in this particular area. And we just didn't want it to be like that. And so a bunch of us, the Quayars included, moved our families here to start a ministry right here in Northeast Colorado Springs. Now, here's the reality. Number one, we won't accomplish the goals we have without the faithful giving of God's people. Money. I mean, like, there's no, there's no tricks, right? We can't, there's no dance that we do in the office that makes it rain money. Like, it takes money to do ministry. It just does. And there are lots of dreams that we have about helping the lost and hurting in this city. I haven't shared this statistic with you in a long time, but out of the roughly 800 people that live in the greater Springs area, only about 12% of those go to church on a regular basis. That means there's a lot of work to do, a lot of hurting people to help, a lot of people that need the message that God is not mad at them, that He loves them, that He has a plan for their life. And we got to get that message out. I, I still run into you guys from time to time and you'll literally have this conversation with me. You're trying to be very careful about it and I appreciate that. But in your heart, what you want to stay is, can we just keep this church small? And the answer is no. That would be silly. That would be like a bunch of us finding the cure to cancer and meeting in someone's house all the time and going, don't tell anybody we found the cure. That just seems dumb, doesn't it? And I would challenge you, if, if that's you and you struggle with that, I would just challenge you with this question. Take it for what it's worth. Be mad at me. You can email me. I'm a big boy. What do you come to church for? What are you in this for? If you're in this for you, you might be backing up to the wrong truck. It's not for you. It's for us. For God to change our lives so that we can see a city changed in a city given hope. I mean, listen, it was just two short weeks ago that all of us watched, really one week ago, for a funeral processional where evil is targeting the law enforcement to our area. Like, we, we got a lot to do here. And it takes money. And so I'm not shy in saying, if you want God to bless you, practice biblical giving. If you want him to blow you away with his faithfulness, even if you're not giving right now, just start giving a little bit and see how God just blows you away by taking care of you. Michelle and I have been tithers for about 24 years. And I'm not patting us on the back. I'm patting God on the back saying there were times where that tithe check was really hard to write because we didn't know where the other stuff was going to come from. And time after time, God shows up. And this bill gets paid in this way, or this door opens for this job, or whatever it is, it's amazing. He's going to take care of you. But if you believe in what He's doing here, then this is where your tithe ought to be. And tithe is just a biblical word that means one-tenth. It means one-tenth of everything you make, so if you make a million a month, then $100,000 a month would, would go to your local church. And if you believe in what we're doing here, the bridge would be that local church. And that's where you ought to give. And when you give, I'm just telling you, 
it opens doors for us to do more. It, it gives us the ability to hire more staff, to do more projects. Just a week ago, we were down here at Woodman Hills Elementary loving on those teachers. We gave away about $600 worth of gift cards and fed them breakfast. And I know what it's like to be a teacher in the dead of winter, right? Where at the beginning of the school year, everything's exciting. And now you're just like, make these kids go away. And I'm telling you, I know what that's like. And for just a moment that morning, you, your church, lit their fire again. And that's what we want to be about. And so I'll close. Let me brag on you. This is not a, you're not giving enough. So straighten up and start giving us your money. This is, I want you to be right in line with God on that area, just like any other area of your life. I want you walking closely with him and trusting that he's enough no matter what. But I want to close on this one. The Bridge Fellowship, you are a generous church. I meet with other church planters, and that's just some weird name that they gave for people who start new churches. And because of what God's doing here at the bridge, we have a lot of people come to us and say, will you meet with these young church planters and tell them what you did? In fact, we had someone in our church last week, someone visiting, and they stopped my wife afterwards and go, can we meet so you can tell us how in the world you did all this? And we're like, well, we didn't do it. God did it. But here's my point, is when I meet with those guys and they turn the conversation toward finances, I feel so guilty. Because they're like, how are we going to do a church? I don't have two nickels to rub together. And I just have to throw up my hands and just go, I don't know how to coach you on that one. All I can tell you is the faithfulness of God's people who regularly give their tithes. That's how we're able to do this. That's the only way, is that you have been generous and faithful. And so as your pastor, I say thank you. As your pastor, I say, don't stop, okay? Like, don't. But thank you that you have been faithful and trusting in not only God, but us as your leadership to make this something special. And we, and we want it. It is special. You are a part of something special. And that's why word's going to keep spreading. And hopefully more and more people are going to walk in this door and they can find out what you've been told today. This running a great race. Don't quit. Let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you just don't give up on us. Even when we do it completely backwards, you're so faithful. Thank you for mornings like this morning when maybe there's somebody who came in here today and life's just really heavy and they just needed somebody to ski up beside them and yell, you got this. God, thank you that you're the one ultimately that constantly does that in our lives. Thank you for reminding us of the finish line and the hopes and the joys that lie ahead of us on the journey that we're running together. God, we, we trust you. We want to learn to trust you more. 
we know that you are the answer that we've been looking for. Not more money, not more status, not a better job or a better house. You are what we've been looking for. So thank you, Jesus. Be with us as we go out today. Help us to make an encouraging impact on someone else's life. It's in Jesus' name we pray.